Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on how the military decides what weapon systems it will field and the management tools for getting it done. I'm Eric Lofgren of George Mason University's Baroni Center for Government Contracting. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to share it with your colleagues and get more content by subscribing to my blog at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have Pete Newell back on the podcast. He's CEO of BMNT Inc., co-founder of Hacking Before Defense, and a retired Army colonel who ran the rapid equipping force that fielded hundreds of products into Iraq and Afghanistan. Pete, thanks for joining me again on the Acquisition Talk podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Eric. So you've had a couple of recent interesting articles, but I want to start with kind of the national defense strategy, which just came out, and the geopolitical conditions. You argued that the United States needs to really rethink the approach it's taking entirely to national security. What's the cause for this rhetoric? So I'll say it bluntly. The national defense strategy came out, and then the, the defense budget came out. And I think first we have yet to acknowledge the operating environment, both economically and, and from a national security standpoint, has significantly changed. And I'll probably point to what's going on in the Ukraine over and over again, which is not radically different than what happened you know, in the interwar years between World War I and World War II with Germany. And the bottom line is we're in an era where people are looking at the adoption and the adaption of emerging tech building new operating concepts and putting them to work in real time in warfare. And the Pentagon is built on a system that does that in 30-year cycles. So the question is, how do you do this in three to five-year cycles? And despite the fact that the NDS calls for innovation and it recognizes many of the same problems, there's not been no kidding concerted effort to change that. And there are multiple issues. There's the one is that U.S. problems are not just U.S. problems, they're allied problems. The supply chains for building the things we employ don't necessarily exist within the United States. They exist within our allies. The folks who are going to be in conflict first are our allies, not the United States. So there are innumerable things that, that are intercombined with what we would consider to be a different world where we have to approach our national security in a different way. And have you been tracking, like, what, what's happening with companies in the U.S. trying to get their products into the field in Ukraine? And then how about companies that are foreign trying to do business with the United States? What are those key issues? And I can start with the foreign companies. You know, we run a Hacking for Allies program that looks at common problems between our allies and then looks at the companies in the allied countries that are advancing technology that actually solves those problems, and then looks at the U.S. market and says, is there a place for this company? And, and first and foremost, it's, it's a business challenge for the company. It says, I'm a company in Norway. What's it going to take for me to do business in the United States? I'm a Norwegian company. I'm just not going to get a contract direct through an SBIR with the United States government. Or it's, I'm not ready to do a contract. I need investor dollars. I need to build a better company. And I think, and I, over and over again, I look at people and say that the problem with the way the government approaches this is not necessarily about getting government investment dollars to fuel the widget. It's about building a better company to build a better technology that can survive and scale. So we look at this allied program as 
first and foremost, about building better companies and then building the business case for that company actually doing business in the United States successfully. And then obviously, then there are all those barriers of, if you think it's hard for a U.S. company to get past security issues and classification issues and conflict issues and issue after issue after issue, imagine what it's like to do it from a third country. It's almost impossible. Where they are successful is when there is a commercial reason for extending that company into the United States, then it becomes much easier because you're talking about a U.S. entity doing business in the United States. The Buy America and some of the other rules that have been put in place to protect U.S. businesses in many cases have been misused or misunderstood or misinterpreted that are also preventing perfectly legitimate companies from countries that we have bilateral agreements with from getting excited about doing business in the United States. So there's a simple four of issues with the allied side of the technology. For companies in the United States, it's still, I applaud the work that AFWorks and many others did in opening up SBIR to more companies and get more money to them. That did not fix the FAR-based contracts that companies have to get to to scale. It just created more volume against that impenetrable wall. We still haven't figured out what the programmer record is for something that's not a programmer record. So how do you sustain the development and deployment of something for three to five years that's not going to be a 30-year program? How do you do .mlpf? You know, that, how do we train, equip, and do that? How do we do that in six months instead of six years? All those things that are getting in the way, we just can't seem to get out of our own way with the current system. We, I'd say, we have all these people who have been given jobs related to compliance, and nobody's willing to look at them and say, we want you to be barely compliant. Stop trying to perfect compliance and prevent people from moving forward. We just want you to be just good enough to prevent a train wreck. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking over all the product support stuff, and there's hundreds of handbooks and like the LoRa analyses and maintenance task analyses. It's just, it's almost endless. Like at first I thought acquisition was scary and impenetrable with the FAR and the 5,000. And then when I looked at product support stuff, I was like, that that's even scarier, right? Well, Steve Blank and I and Steve Spear are just deep into this conversation. It's just, you know, Steve Blank and I, I really started nagging him about doctrine probably five years ago. And after two years of it, he finally figured out what I was saying. But the three of us has really dug into the, this concept of why do we need a doctrine for producing new capabilities and new operating concepts at speed and scale, which means I can do it fast enough that I can scale it far enough to actually have an impact when I need to. Putting a Band-Aid on the current PBE system is not the answer to doing that. But this isn't and should not be construed as a replacement for the current system. The current system is inadequate to do what we need it to do by itself. And simply trying to put Band-Aids on it is not going to create an end-to-end seamless pipeline that delivers capabilities at the speed we need it. Is it possible to reform large institutions, or do you really have to build something new based on new paradigms or technologies, go around that system? What's your view? When's the last time the DOD reformed? The last great reformation. You could say Goldwater. Yeah. So in many cases, I'll tell you, the Pentagon is too transient. The generals and the leadership and the political leadership comes and goes fairly rapidly. 
So the idea that the Pentagon is going to create a massive change on its own is probably far-fetched. And I don't want to say it's a bridge too far. It's the wrong ask. The idea that the Congress will probably have to drive that change. So whatever the, what was it, the Packard, there were substantial commissions that were put together and lots of hearings and lots of discussion before Goldwater Nichols became a thing. We probably need to kick that process off or at least have an honest discussion about whether it is time to reform the Pentagon, its structure and its output to ensure that we are doing both, delivering capabilities rapidly at scale and delivering long-term capabilities using the resources as best we can for the United States. It's not either or. We have to do both. But I don't think the system has acknowledged both are, are equally important. Yeah, we had the Weapon Systems Acquisition Reform Act in 2009, which maybe went in the wrong direction, really focusing on cost growth and risk reduction. But And then we had 30 years after Goldwater, there was those series of hearings that led to the 2016 NDAA middle tier of acquisition, the revitalization of other transactions. But I, I feel like you're saying something like those were smaller efforts. It wasn't like a Packer Commission Goldwater. But there's also the issue of, okay, it needs to come from Congress, but who's really driving that? Because it's not like constituents are like super involved and really are going to be like voting on this issue. How do you get that groundswell? I think the, and I have, I've spent innumerable hours with members of Congress having personally talked to Mike Rogers, Adam Smith, and a number of others that are on the House and some on the Appropriations Committee. I think there is a sense that the dollars being put against innovation aren't necessarily achieving innovation and capabilities that, that in the manner we need to. And obviously, the big boogeyman is competition with China. But I think they're also recognizing, quite surprisingly, how fast the Ukrainians found new operating concepts and applied technologies and implemented them to the utter dismay of the Russians. That's probably more of the future than it, than it has been of the past. So you can't look at those two and say, we're in the right place. You just don't come to that conclusion. I think the, I come back to that compliance thing, as you said, and the risk reduction only reduces the risk of program failure. It does not reduce the risk on the battlefield. In fact, every delay that you go through in delivering something increases the risk to a warfighter on the battlefield. And it's catastrophic on the battlefield when you don't deliver the right capability on time. We haven't created a profession that does that. I can look at all of the innovation platforms out there and the people that were involved in them, and it's not that I have an axe to grind over the demise of REF, but the demise of REF was just a catastrophic screw-up on the Army's part. And that's the Rapid Innovation Fund or Rapid rapid Equipping Force? force. Yeah, both of those are now gone, but... Yeah, and look at it. I know that Nate Diller retired the other day, and... Unfortunately, Nate raised his hand and is going to go to work in Congress as a professional staff member. But if you look at the people involved in the innovation cells that have been successful, whether it's DIU, the former REF, or Army Futures Command, or AFWorks, or even AVLX, they're all gone. And most, I would say all but about two or three left service and went someplace else, which tells you there's no profession that values what they were able to do so much that they were held in service and, and kept doing things. And I, think I come back and belabor the point about doctrine. Is doctrine 
creates organizational structure and jobs and outputs and defines things and actually shows you what's valued and what's not. Doctrine eventually will give you a human resources system that values what these people are doing and will allow you professionally to build a professional development system that, that finds, creates, grows, and retains them, without which you're not going to be able to achieve an organizational change. I mean, that's part of what joint doctrine mandated that we all go get joint duty billets and get joint assignments and go to joint schools so that we could get promoted. Imagine if you had the same mandate about innovation. And what would that look like? Is it because there's all these types of things you have to do to go to the next level at 04 or 506? Maybe you have an option of kind of like joint duty credit is that we give the same credit to people that were Stanford fellows that spent a year at DIU, who rather than a joint duty assignment, that's what they did. And that still qualifies them for promotion to 06 and the general officer. Imagine if a young captain who's running 18th Airborne Corps' innovation platform were given constructive credit as a branch officer, rather than be told, if you're not a company commander by this time and you don't have OERs to do this, you won't be selected promotion to major. So I can give you tons of examples. The system says you have to get all these jobs done, and if you take a detour and do this, you're putting yourself at risk. It seems like a lot of this is to really change the mindset. I liked what you said there about risk. Pete Modigliani actually had a really good post on something exactly what you said, where he had this nice chart where it was like, as we drive down acquisition risk over time, you know, the risk to the warfighter gets driven up. You know, risk appears somewhere else, even where you're not expecting it potentially. But every time it looks like we go back to the system, Defense officials often say something like, if I'm not going to accept a new system unless it does everything my previous system did, but better. But it seems like that's contrary to this kind of mindset of how disruptive yeah. tech is adopted and then scaled. Can you, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I see, you know, we had a saying, a ref, and we used to say that the mantra of a ref was about speed of delivery. We would sacrifice cost and performance for speed of delivery, which means I would accept a 70% solution that I paid too much for in order to get out to the battlefield faster so that I could get feedback on the problem I was solving and feedback on the capability I was delivering. And then over time, we would improve performance and reduce cost. So I'm going to sacrifice performance and cost in order to gain speed. And then I'm going to use what I learned to improve performance and drive cost down. The current system says you got to get all that right before I deploy it, which means more than likely you're going to deploy something that doesn't really solve a problem. Or you're going to delay delivering a capability because it's not perfect while people are dying on the battlefield. Do you think you've heard anybody in Ukraine say, we're not ready to deploy drones yet because we don't know how to fly them? <laughs> all they said, give us the stuff, we'll figure it out. And the more they gave them, the more they figured it out. And then they actually got better at it. But I'm sure that the first few days of employing Switchblade was probably not the prettiest thing you ever saw. But today, they're actually pretty damn good at drone attacks. And it's only been a year. In, in the current PPE system, that would take us five years. In the case of Switchblade, 10. I put Switchblade in on the battlefield in Afghanistan in 2011. And here we are in Ukraine for the first time actually using it. That's the crux of the problem. It feels that a lot of these technologies, autonomy, of the commercial space, additive manufacturing. These things are just, in my view, almost bound to revolutionize defense. And maybe it's within the decade, maybe it's longer. I, like, 
You can talk, we can debate when's the right time. We are always slowing these programs down until they're perfect and everyone wants to reduce that risk. How do you, do we have to look at Ukraine? What is it that we have to do with .mil, PF, and all that kind of stuff in order to get really people to come along? Is it delegating these decisions down to folks like you who are the program managers? Would they be willing to take the risk or are they not empowered to do this or they wouldn't even do it even if you did delegate? So I'm going to use the doctrine word again. Doctrine produces a common language around the relationship between things. And that common language, quite frankly, is the basis for a culture. So you're talking is, what's the culture change we need to have happen? It aligns the recognition, analysis, and articulating of emerging problems and provides that to a body of people whose job it is to look at current capabilities and say, can I modify a current capability to solve that problem? Or do I have something that's currently in the works that I can just accelerate? Or is there something else in the commercial world that's in the realm of possible that I can advance and attach to the problem and perhaps make it go away. You want a culture that does all three. You're developing this thing for this requirement over here, but if I gave you this, what would you do to change or combine these different things to answer that problem if I told you 60 days to do it? And the floodgates would open up with people providing answers, and you'd find people from companies that were supposedly competitors actually talking to each other about, if we took one of my things and put one of your things on it, we could do this. And that's how smartphones made it on the battlefield. And I probably never told that story of, I'm sorry, I'm not taking a left field either. Please. I was in Afghanistan in 2010, right after I became the draft director. And I was sitting in the headquarters for 10th Mountain Division talking to Steve Townsend, who just retired as a four-star. Steve had been my boss at Third Ranger Battalion. And I went to Steve, Steve, because I could have an honest conversation about things that were going on. And he literally poked me in the chest on the way in the door. And apparently... A couple of nights before I got there, two Navy corpsmen were killed in a fratricide. There was a combat outpost that was attacked, and the corpsmen were trying to move to the combat outpost and were mistaken for the Taliban, who were also attacking and were killed in the process. And Steve, in his frustration, he picked up his phone and he says, why is it I can pick up a phone like this and I can tell you exactly where every one of my Afghani counterparts are? But, and I can pick up a Blue Force tracker and I can tell where every vehicle is. Why the hell can't I figure out where my people are so this doesn't happen anymore? And I just, I don't know, but let me go back and work on it. So I went back to REF, and it just happened that there was an engineer from Harris and an engineer from General Dynamics in REF one day. And I said, hey, you guys are smart. Explain to me, because it's a digital radio, I got a phone, why I can't tell them my phone to a radio and send a digital signature that's got personal located information on it. And the two of them looked at it and said, yeah, it's absolutely possible. It's not hard. <laughs> and it's just, it's, so why aren't we doing it? And the guys literally on the dry erase board, I wish I saved a picture of it, but they actually drew it out, the cable that had to be constructed in order to do that. And I just, I looked at it and I said, this is bullshit. If it were that simple, we'd be doing it. And the guy said, no, really. I said, fine, you prove it. So the guys showed up a month later. And at first they said, don't tell anybody we did this. And certainly don't tell the FCC that we're doing this. But I got a Harris radio. I got a cable built by General Dynamics. And I've got an Android phone. And there's one in my office. And there's one on the other side of Fort Belvoir. And the guy flips it on. He says, that blue dot, the guy's driving down road XYZ. And it's his trail. And he can see you. can see. He said, that easy. So I asked him, can you give me 10 cables? And I went through this whole nut roll with folks in the Pentagon about radios. And who had the authority to put something on a radio versus not? And 
I got my butt chewed by more general officers than I could take a stick at. But eventually, I put that system on the ground at um, Fort Bliss for one of the exercises out there and fought tooth and nail with the acquisition folks who said, no, you're not allowed, you can't do that, can't turn it on, can't do, can't, 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 can't. <laughs> and eventually got in front of the vice chief of staff who saw it said, I don't know what the hell you people are doing, but stop spending money on that other stuff and do this. Come to find out, the guy who ran Demo LV, which was the radio service of the Army, came back to me and says, you literally just knocked three years and $1.5 billion off the program on record. Because by this point, I will tell you, the Army had been at the development of this ability, the objective control unit, for damn near 10 years. They had spent over a billion dollars trying to replicate what Apple was doing on a fly with $300 phones. And within a year, we were deploying capability sets that had phones tethered to radios. And so I go back and say, it's a culture thing. There's no doctrine for what I was doing. I just did it. And by force of nature, got it done, even amidst the threats and the pushback from other people. Imagine what life would be like if that was the norm rather than the exception to how we do things. I don't say that's not, but that's what we're trying to get to, is recognizing that an emerging tech sometime will completely outpace the thing that we was in JSIDs that was a requirement, and we just need to dump it and do the other thing. But that's not a cultural process for lots of reasons. Yeah. That was a really great story. You know, it, it relied on these like personal heroics from you having the right person, the right place. And then the vice chief happened to be there and just could cut through the BS. But that's scary for a regular person in a regular program office. How do we get this beyond the personal heroics? <laughs> it's uniquely unpleasant. Listen, I called myself the most investigated colonel on the face of the earth for about three years while I was at rough. Wow. As you remember, I was also the guy that funded Palantir. I don't say I was impervious to it. I was just so dismayed over the just incapability of people to get past that and just do it. And eventually I realized that the vice chief of staff of the Army really did have my back. He yelled at me a lot, but he never threatened to fire me. I get yelled at by a lot of generals, but nobody had the ability to fire me, except him, and he didn't. But it shouldn't take heroics like that, to, to go to your point, is it does take, like being in a startup world, not everybody is tuned and has the wherewithal to go through the intense of building a company. And I will tell you, having done it a couple of times now, it's intense. But there are people who are really good at it. That's all they want to do. So why shouldn't we grow that culture and keep those people inside government service? I mean, it isn't just DOD. I think the entire government has this problem. feels like there's always going to be people in acquisition and otherwise. It seemed like there's a lot of people that came to you that were like, this is my turf. I have these contracts going, whatever it is. Actually, could you just say, what's their perspective and how do you bring them along? Or like, why do you think they took the stance that they took? One of the things that's interesting, and it's a really good question. One of the things we teach our students in Hacking for Defense and BMT works on with its clients is this concept of stakeholder mapping. And one of the things that the lean methodology that Steve built that was so enamored itself with me was this process of discovery. And it's not just discovering the why and the what, it's discovering the how. So you have to understand what the value proposition is for solving a problem and what the value of the pain point is versus all the other things you could be solving. And then you have to create a really good story around that so that you can sort out who is going to support that, who's going to advocate it, and who the saboteurs are. 
And the saboteurs are this, my program, don't screw up my program, don't mess up my program. You can't do that on my compliance program. You know, all those excuses. The beauty of it is tell people don't run away from the saboteurs because the most powerful advocate you can build is a saboteur you've converted to being an advocate. So in fact, is you turn into them and you sort out what's their motivation for trying to prevent me from doing something. And then see if you can't attack the motivation and reduce that to a point where, oh, okay, I get what you're doing and it's a safe thing. There are always going to be somebody, and I call it the entrenched 10%, that dig the heels in and it becomes a personal thing. Turf battle. It's my turf. You can't touch my turf. Don't touch my turf. And I don't care what you don't touch my turf. And obviously there are plenty of ways to get around, over, through people like that. But you can't make that a profession because that takes time and energy away from doing the work you need to do. So if you can avoid that, avoid it. But this idea of creating a series of hypotheses and collecting data and validating that data and producing analysis based on really good data is indefensible. And people who will try and prevent you from doing something have a hard time arguing with your data because they have none. And your data tells a really good story. You tell the story in the right places. People have no choice but to listen to you. And it makes it really hard for them to just say you're doing the wrong thing and it's my turf because you make them look dumb. But you had a mandate that the rapid equipping force, a lot of times you can't even, like how do you even collect the data or get the empirical evidence when I needed to go through a requirement? I had to do all of these things. I had to get everyone on before I could even get the empirics to validate what I was doing. Because you were able to basically like, hey, I talked to these guys. They said it was easy to connect the radio to the cell phone. And they just went out and did it and said, and I was listening, whenever I go back into history and I see where a lot of these new systems come from, oftentimes they're very irregular in that exact same way. And it took these types of heroics, but that's not a repeatable process necessarily. The process is certainly repeatable. I would say the heroics are dependent on social connections. So I don't think venture capital in Silicon Valley built on heroics. You have the heroics of people who start companies and suffer through growing them and the risk. And you have the heroics of investors who take the risk. And But you can't tell me that's not a repeatable process because they repeat it over and over. So they're harnessing the heroics inside a set of norms and networks and things like that. And then using the social connections of people who are used to doing this with one another, where they're able to trade, I need help with something versus you need. I read a a great example. I read a wonderful note last night. We have a company we're spending out of BM&T. It's an AI company. This year is the absolute worst year to raise money. But there are people coming to this company and helping them. And one of these comments was the CEO of the company looked at a guy who was helping to connect them with investors. He said, why are you spending so much time helping us. And the guy said, first and foremost, you got a great product and I like the idea. He goes, but even more importantly, I owe the team at BMT so much for the time they spent with me over the last three years. So trading on that personal collateral that you've earned from people actually to do hard things. But you have to be able to work with people in an environment to do hard things to earn that collateral to be able to use it. And I have no doubt that you went back to the same people over and over again when you were trying to get stuff done because you trusted them and they trusted you and you were able to get things done. So, and I come back to, I come back to this doctrine thing again. We need to create that culture so it's not ad hoc, it's not heroic, and it's not fleeting as the people disappear and run away. We need to do it intentionally. We want to create this social, social connection around doing this really hard work with a set of guidelines and a set of rules that works. And we want them to do it over and over again and repeat it and grow and get better at it. So it's a permanent part of a national security system, not a passing thought whenever there's a war going on. 
whenever I look at the, the program planning and milestone acquisition process, it's all about, I see process on a program, but I it's see- like the I process don't, for the sake of the process. But I don't see people, any like literally I don't see people or relationships or networks anywhere in that, right? You kind of have to like decompose whose functional job is this and they're for, there for two years and they just hand it off in a piecemeal fashion. Like everyone touches the elephant, no one owns or is really responsible for the elephant. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I think it wants to further that nobody says when you're getting hired to be a PM or something is how good your network? Can you prove that you have a network that expands beyond just the military and, right. and you touch these other? That's not a grading point. But if I'm hiring the CEO of my next company, it's a, it's a grading point. So it comes back to is how do we create an environment where we're not just encouraging them people, but we're actually grading them. How well connected to the technology world or the operating world are you in terms of the capability of doing your job? And then if, and if we make that a point, then what are we doing to ensure that you have the ability to do that? What things do we send you to or what experiences do you need in order to create that viable network out there that, that actually will help you over time versus telling you're not allowed to go TDY, you need permission to go to this, and three bosses up need to say it's okay to talk to these folks. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast with Bob Iger from Disney, and he said something that was funny because Disney had a little bit of a culture problem. And they said, we would just source these movie ideas, and then we would just go find the director and throw it at the director. And when they acquired Pixar the way that Pixar did it, the director was intimately involved from the start of the idea, and it and he owned that idea all the way through, which felt a little bit more like a startup CEO, right? It, does there need to be something like that in the DoD, where it's often like we throw them a requirement as opposed to who generated this requirement and are they the right person to actually see it through? I think that's part of the research process. You know, I, I don't know who was working on it. I think probably the Navy, where we walk them through this idea of if they have a problem and the first thing you get, the first thing you ask is, why is this a problem? Is somebody already working on this and just didn't solve it? Or is this the first time it's been recognized? The first thing is, is anybody working on the problem? And if somebody is working on the problem, what are they doing? If they're moving in a different direction, maybe they don't have access to the information you have. So maybe if you gave them the information, you actually get something done. Or if you partner with them. And if they're not, and then it's the case of, okay, whose domain is this? Who should be working this? Why aren't they? Not because they didn't know about it, they don't have a requirement, they don't have the thing. And sometimes you find out that it doesn't sit in anybody's domain. And it sits on the white space, which means you have to start looking at leadership and say, okay, if I'm going to solve this problem, what program is supposed to have it? And then they're like, and, and somebody eventually figures out, okay, it's going to be this person. It's okay, you're it. And you know why you were selected to be the PM in charge of robotic mind clearing for donkeys. Like, you know, whatever it is, the, then the PM, okay, now I understand why I'm doing this, and you're the person that's going to help me get it done. But I think you have to go through that process of discovery in order to actually make progress. The flip side of that is if we're talking about speed, more than likely we're not inventing something new. We're taking a capability of something that's sitting someplace at rest and combining it with something else and putting them together and actually employing them in a new operating concept. In order to do that, you have to know what's out there, which means you constantly have to be searching and talking to people and recognizing things so that when something happens, you go, oh, wait a minute, I saw something over here and I saw something over here. Let me go back and talk to these people. 
And that process of the conversation produces new ideas about both am I on the right problem, but also what's the scale of this, what's the potential scale of the speed of delivery of the capability, which means how fast can I get it? And every once in a while, you're going to be told that's a chemistry problem and you can't throw enough money at it to make it go faster. So stop trying to solve it. And in a lot of cases, that's, wow, yeah, there's a capability sitting on the shelf that DARPA worked on five years ago. It was at this company. Go see if you can find them. And if you combine that with something else, then now you have a potential solution. That's, I think that mantra is at the heart of this thing that I think the DOD needs to be reformed to actually embody and build. Yeah, it seems like we're in the danger window with China to a degree. We don't have time to create all these new technologies and build things from scratch. What does that look like in order to, if we're going to create radical transformation within the future year's defense program, within five years, we have to start from what already exists, right? You nailed it. There is absolutely nothing that's going to be delivered in the next three to five years that counters what people say the Chinese are capable of doing in three to five years. Nothing. Hypersonics, man, three to five years. Countering denied access, not three to five years. Thing after thing is we're building capabilities that will be delivered. Maybe eight if we're lucky. But you're right at it. Is first is, do we recognize what the, cap- the Chinese are capable of doing within the next three to five years? And, we do- and do we have a process of pulling things that are already out there and recombining them to actually counter those capabilities or produce capabilities of our own that will disrupt the Chinese? That's not a profession inside the DOD. Somebody said, well, that's A&S's job. No, that's R&E's job. Or no, that's the service's job. Or it's the combatant commander's job. It, it doesn't belong to anyone, which means no one's doing it. That's, I think, the argument that Steve Spears, Steve Blank, and I will make is as long as it's not someone's job and there's not a PE line that goes to it, a doctrine for doing it, it's not going to happen except on an infrequent heroic basis. What's the size of that PE and who, do, who should own it? The last appropriations bill distributed a billion dollars for innovation that's not going to produce innovation. So it's at least a billion dollars, if not more. But given the size of the Pentagon budget, I don't think we're talking a smidgen. There's probably several billion dollars and a sizable workforce that's trained to do it. So it's not insignificant. If you simply looked at, I think we counted up the number of innovation activities across the D, well over 100 of them. If you look at how many people are involved, it's not insignificant. But the size and the number of people and dollars are spent is not producing the effect that you would expect from it because they're all completely disparate. Different rules, different players, different reasons, and they're completely passing, and they're still fighting an older system. Why don't we start with a couple of billion dollars and a and thousand people and work our way up from that? Do they have to own the end-to-end of this life cycle, kind of cradle to the grave? Because a lot of, like, when you look at the DIUs, the AFWERKS, they don't take on something unless they know there's, like, a PEO or a program willing to take it on and there's all of this kind of machination that goes along there. But if they own the cradle of the grave, then people will probably also say, it's going to be unsupported. Like, how can I fund something that's not going to be supported and sustained and these guys don't no. know what they're doing? So I think this is a design flaw. First is DIU, this is just me, doesn't belong under RNA, doesn't belong under AS. It belongs someplace separately where it can pull from the best and brightest. It should have a PE line from both AS and RNA. So that it can do short-term sustainment 
in terms of years of some of the things it's working on for rapid capability development. So I, I hate to bring up REF over and over again. God bless the guys who designed it. They did a beautiful job. It had its own PE line that provided O&M, procurement dollars, and a smidgen of RDT&E that was mostly test and evaluate and had all that authority. But we also had the ability to sustain, not just for short term, but for years, some of the things we put on the battlefield that did not fit neatly into a program of record. And even when I tried to transition something from REF to a program of record, I paid for the first two years of sustainment, which would allow the program to actually palm for the money they needed to take over that capability. Undeveloped, I think, is the concept of how we do transition from the DIUs, from AFWORKS and NavalX to programs of record. And right now, it's DIU trying to push things in rather than the system trying to pull things out of DIU because the money and the contracts and, and the job, they're not set up that way. So I think that awful falls in this category of if I were to do it, how it would be done differently. Any other thoughts on how you would organize to make sure within the next five years we get a radical transformation? I could start with, I hate the fact that I keep saying, the record of a need for a substantial study or discovery or something by Congress that goes past mere studies, but is actually no kidding, we are going to do something. The question is what? We need to get to the we are going to do something, not what should we do. We studied it to death, and there are enough of us experts out here that can talk ad nauseum about what this should be. But we actually need to get to the point of we committed to actually doing something in the next couple of years. That's step one. Two is we need to look at the ones that are successful today and ask them what can be done to free them up to do more. I know that Mike Madison and the folks at DIU or Casey Plew and Naval X and whoever took over AFWORKS, they can talk ad nauseum about what could be done if they were just given the authority and the access and the funding to do it. And I think that those are easy to me. I just when you get past the fiefdoms and really free them up to work wherever they need to work versus saying you can only do this over here. So I want to circle back maybe a little bit to the international before we wrap up. We tend to think that the U.S. always has the best tech for defense in the world. Have you seen that? Yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Is the U.S. in fact behind in some respects other nations? Would that alarm us and maybe get us to, to act in the way you're suggesting? Yeah, I think I've been fortunate to spend time in a lot of, I would say, a lot of the allied startup cultures. I sat on a board for a company in Canada and I learned a lot about just how friendly the government of Canada is to building startups. Our time with the Norwegians in Akron for allies program has been fantastic. The the fact that there's a BMT in the UK and we're constantly engaged with companies in the UK or BMT in Australia has given us really a unique opportunity of what their perspective of the US market is. And in many times as you look at it and say Australia produces some of the best mining-related technology because a lot of their economy depends on mining technologies have an immediate transference to national security technologies. But you have to be able to step back and look at, I'm not just looking at this from a military perspective, I'm looking at it from a commercial perspective of how do I produce a viable commercial company that can actually produce an answer to a tech problem in the United States that's not solely a tech problem or not solely a defense problem. If it's solely a defense problem and doesn't exist anywhere else, that's probably the purview of a prime someplace. But if it is something that has to be a viable, because it's a commercial issue, then it's probably not. And then you really need to 
search for the best emerging technology and figure out how do I get it to where I need it, whether it's allied or whether it's, whether it's coming out of a prime as something or whether it's coming out of academia. I think there's a beauty of many of the programs that we've started is they've all been focused on that ideal of find me the best stuff and I'll figure out what the process is to get it to the point that is needed. And that's virtually where we're hacking for defense and hacking for allies, hacking for climate from and a bunch of the defense investor network. They were all built as, as answers to pain points along that process. In just the last minute we have, what's your view on the Office of Strategic Capital? Will that help or what's your view? My vote's out. I know the folks are standing up and they are brilliant. I know that they understand the problem. I know that they understand why the trusted capital marketplace was such a colossal failure. I hope they're able to implement what they understand, knowing that it's the government. And here's just my perspective of anybody who says, yeah, I'm a defense ventures or I'm doing venture capital for defense or whatever else is... There's tons of venture capital and private equity available in the United States today. We don't need any more. The U.S. government is the only person in the national country who can write a contract to a company to actually build something that helps them produce a better product and a product line that actually makes it more valuable and more attractive to venture. So we really need is the U.S. government to focus on doing their job, write contracts, write production-level contracts for short-term production lines in that three- to five-year time frame for things that aren't programs of record because they'll help a company build a better product, both commercially and for defense, that makes them more attractive to venture dollars, that helps them build a better company that will eventually deliver a better project, better product for less money back to the government. You just need the government to completely do its job rather than try and do the job of private equity and private capital and other folks. I know that the guys running and building the Office of Strategic Capital understand that. I just hope they're capable of actually building something that that does what needs to be done. It's a great call to action. Pete Newell, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thanks for letting me take over the podcast. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. Please subscribe, share, and rate this podcast so others can find it too. You can reach out to me at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.